Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Happy holidays and welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. This podcast is for those who challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla, and we have a special holiday gift for you today. During this festive season, family tends to be the front of mind. From figuring out how to spend time with them, especially amidst a pandemic, on what's on TV, the stories told, and the music played... We wanted to join this holiday spirit with our own version of a holiday family story. We bring you a story for the family like no other. It'll warm your heart and challenge the ideas of love, parenthood, family, and more, all at the same time. We recorded this piece a year ago when our podcast was still in its infancy. And we didn't know much, but we knew that this was a precious story that needed the right editor. And with the talented Nita Pollock on board, we were able to take the story out of the archives and finally share it with the world. So steal some time today for yourself and listen to a different kind of family story filled with all the drama and hope of Dickens, but with a much more interesting and important twist. So, Ryan, you and I met at an event with the amazing Midori, and you kindly shared your story with me uh, at the time, and it blew me away. I was so intrigued, and it was such an interesting story. From then on, I have been convinced that I want to hear that story again on the record, and I want to share that with the world, and you kindly obliged, and you're here. <laughs> and I am super grateful, and I am... So excited to, to hear it all over again and an update because there's a big update. <laughs> and I really am grateful you're here. So tell, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, well, thanks for having me. My name is Ryan. You said that already. I live in Queens with my partner and our two dogs. I am a trans and non-binary person. I work in the sex industry uh, primarily as an educator. And I am a queer, non-monogamous person and also a birth parent. A birth parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a term that you hear very often. People just say, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a parent. And you say you're a birth parent. Yeah. Um, do you wanna, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So to put it really dryly, I'm a, a non-custodial parent, which... I think has a lot of different implications for a lot of different types of stories. But in my case, what that means is that I am the parent of a child in an adoption dynamic. Our adoption is super open. So I'm very close to my son and his parents and their extended family. And they're very close to mine. And we see each other really frequently. And I guess we'll get to this part in the story, but Mm -hmm. have talked a lot about, you know, how to expand our family and continue to build on that dynamic Mm -hmm. and integrate it, which I think is really unique in adoption. Adoption is really complicated. It's not a family dynamic that folks talk a lot about. Like you said, the term birth parent, not very familiar, although I'm sure that we've all heard of adoptive parents. 
And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, birth parents, there's a lot of stigma around what leads one to become somebody who places their child in an adoption. And also the narrative, what little narrative there is around adoption, as far as the birth parent is concerned, frequently kind of stops at the point of adoption. Partially, I think, because we have a long history of participating primarily in closed adoptions where there's no contact between the birth parent and the adoptive family, and also just because it's a challenging position to be in. I wonder if maybe it's not something that people are always prepared Mm. to hear about or to Mm. bear witness to, Mm. because for all of the beautiful things that can come out of adoption, that come out of family building in general, it's complicated. And I also think it can't be It can't be extracted from living in a society that is capitalist, that doesn't provide people with access to the sufficient resources to parent when they want to all the time, or that doesn't provide people with access to a full range of reproductive choices. And so that conversation about the choices that we make becomes complicated with this nuance of of coercion that uh, I think is really uncomfortable. Mm. But in the world of sex ed and sex positivity, coercion is something that we talk about a lot mm. in, in the context of consent. And I think it has a place in talking about family building too. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to explore that more as we carry on this conversation. Now, when we talked, you know, you kind of shared that, that the story of how you are, you know, you are where you are today. And I think it started with you not even thinking that you can have a child. Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, definitely. Like I said, I'm a trans person. When I became pregnant the first time, I had been on testosterone for three years. And that was, I mean, let's see, it was six years ago now that I got pregnant, which means it was almost 10 years ago when I started taking testosterone, which was a very different time for trans people, for trans people in the medical industry. And I started taking testosterone when I was 18 and I went to uh, an informed consent clinic, meaning I did not go through months of therapy or a letter of recommendation or a psychiatric evaluation. I went to a doctor who had me sign off on the possible side effects or risks of taking testosterone. And then I got it. And in that conversation, in that consultation, one of the things that they told me was to expect that going on testosterone would mean that I would not be fertile and that I wouldn't be having biological children, which was a complicated and difficult thing to hear. I've Mm. always wanted to have kids. I come from a really big family. It's really normal to me to be surrounded by a lot of young people and have a role in like caretaking with them. My family had a very communal approach to sort of raising each other when I was growing up and a lot of contact. So that was, that was really hard, but that was what I was told by the doctor. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I thought was true. And I wasn't having, having cycles while I was on testosterone. I didn't have really an indication that I might be fertile. And so I went about my life. And we moved to New York in maybe 2010 or 11, my current partner and I. And my partner is also trans and we have the same genetic material. So we can't conceive of children by accident, but we're not monogamous. And there was someone that I was playing with and yeah, I was, I was 21. We were living in New York city. Um, I was seeing somebody and sometime after hurricane Sandy, (laughs) (laughs) I remember writing a final paper for one of my classes and my chest just hurt so much and I didn't know why and I was getting really sick. I didn't know what was going on and lo and behold, uh, I was pregnant. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a shock to me. It was really confusing because I had, I was just sort of getting to this point where I had been on testosterone long enough that I was starting to be read as the gender that I was trying to present to the world that I didn't immediately have to disclose my trans status to everyone in order to be engaged with, with the correct pronouns. Things were really starting to, to get easier in that, in that realm. And, and then I was pregnant and I was really conflicted about Mm -hmm. what to do about it. At first, my partner and I were not ready to have or co-parent kids at Mm -hmm. that time. The person who fathered my child told me if I did not have an abortion, they never wanted to see or hear from me ever again, and they did not want it to come back to them. That was when I was about eight weeks, and that was the last conversation that we've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to have an abortion. I thought that it made the most sense at the time. And I began the steps of going through that process just because I didn't really think there were other viable options and I couldn't go through with it. Having received that messaging that I would never have children, that I wouldn't be a parent, I felt like that might be my one opportunity mm-hmm. and I didn't want to miss it. And so I started to consider adoption. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what were that when you found out that, you know, I imagine you took a pregnancy test, right? I took several. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, no, another one, uh, another one. Yep. So eventually when you then took your 10th mm-hmm. and um, it was confirmed that you were pregnant, what were your, as you were doing the tests, like in that moment, in that rawness, what were you, what was going through your mind? Oh my gosh. So many things. On the one hand, there was definitely an undeniable part of me that was, so excited and relieved and surprised Mm -hmm. because I didn't think that was ever going to happen. And God, against all odds, it was happening. Um, I was not fluid bonded with the person that I was playing with. It shouldn't shouldn't have occurred by all Mm -hmm. statistical measures. And it did. And so I, part of me was just really in awe. Part Mm -hmm. of me felt a tremendous amount of guilt. I felt that I had betrayed my partner who I knew that I wanted to have kids with, who I knew wanted to have kids with me, and who I have struggled alongside with this reality that we can't just decide to have kids and have kids and that that will be a challenging thing to figure out Mm -hmm. and that it will never happen by surprise for us. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was going to be something that was difficult to hear and to process and to live with and to bear witness to really closely. And so I felt really bad and kind of ashamed and Mm. just really deeply conflicted about that. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I, I give my partner a lot of credit because their very first response to me was everything is going to be okay. Yeah. They were really sweet and really supportive. And then after a couple of days, we started to dig into everybody's (laughs) feelings. Um, And also both of our, our identities have been really kind of fluid and fluctuated over the years, but at the time they were really exploring their identity as a gay man. And most of their other partners were cis gay men and uh, my partner is very masculine presenting and the prospect of what was going to happen to my presentation and my body and what was going to change and how our dynamic was going to be perceived by other people also started to become a factor. And I was scared and I was really scared. I mean, oh God, we were young and we were broke and (laughs) we were queer and I didn't know a whole lot about adoption. I had seen Juno. I knew that open adoption was a thing, but I wasn't sure what the process would look like for me as a trans person, as someone who conceived on hormones to try to find a match. And it, you know, it turned out that there were a lot of people who didn't want my testosterone baby, who is perfect, by the way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was a 
really big mix of emotions. But I am something of a pragmatist. I do pretty well in a crisis. I like to get myself organized and just kind of go through the steps. And so that's what I started to do. I talked to my partner about wanting to pursue adoption. And I started looking into adoption agencies and talked to a very small handful of people that I knew about what was going on. I was not having a lot of luck in the in the agency department. A lot of adoption agencies are very religious. They're not all LGBT friendly. And if they are, really it's that they're they're LNG friendly and that they're not necessarily informed about trans people, let alone trans people reproducing. And then that sort of started me down this path of trying all these different avenues to find the right match, which was complicated and taught me a lot about how, you know, even queer and poly people are not immune to some of the insidious and toxic lessons that the path to nuclear family dumb teaches us. Um, like, oh, God, I'll never forget. I So when I was going on these high stakes first dates, mm-hmm. right, with um, mm-hmm. all these different prospective parents, I met this couple that I thought on paper was going to be a great match. Mm-hmm. They were queer and he was trans and they were non-monogamous. They were from my home state. And I, I thought this is going to be great. Like mm-hmm. this is going to be it for sure. I was sitting at their table and I just remember them really driving home to me, you know, that they thought the ethical thing was to be in contact, but that the contact would be limited and that I wouldn't be referred to as mom or dad, that only they would be mom or dad because they wanted to make sure their child knew who their parents really were. And they wanted me to have a home birth in their home. And they had all of these preconceived and really steadfast ideas about how the process of adoption and birth was going to look in very possessive ideas about who was going to be who to this, uh, to this baby, which really turned me off. Felt just, oh God, I was like, I felt like a breeding animal. Yeah, I was just exactly Uh, what I was thinking. Yeah. Very transactional. Yeah. Like dehumanized. Yeah. And it also just made me wonder, you know, if we, if we are queer and we're poly and we can accept the notion that there's not one true partner, why is there Mm. only one true mom Mm. or only one true dad? And why are you so invested in distancing me from calling myself a parent or calling my child, my child? Like, what is that? What is that about? And it didn't feel good. Um, so that was, that was not the match. And had you had did, thought through a vision for yourself of what you wanted that relationship to be like? <sighs> I had thought about it and I knew that I knew that I wanted to pursue an open adoption because I never wanted my child to wonder where they came from or why they were adopted. And so when I chose adoption, one of the commitments that I made was that I would always be there to answer those questions. And I don't know, I think that that's important. And beyond that, I hadn't really thought out the details Mm -hmm. because it's, you can't imagine a a whole relationship, you know, before it happens, you have to do it with the people who are actually involved. But the thing that I was really committed to was being there to let my kid know why, why I chose to do what I chose to do. And I kind of felt like, what would be the point if I was just going to bring this kid into the world to disappear, to not be a part of it? Now, on the other side of it, (laughs) you have a lot more understanding for a lot of different directions that birth parents might take for a lot of different reasons, because fuck, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was really early in my pregnancy when I made the decision to go through with adoption. And I was 12 weeks when I matched with the people who are my son's parents. And so we spent 
the majority of my pregnancy bonding and building a relationship and talking about what it would look like on the other side. Still, none of that prepared any of us for what the reality was Mm -hmm. when that happened. But we at least all agreed that it was important to try. So eventually, you know, I, I met all these people and then I met I met my kids' parents. I met them through um, a mutual friend that I knew from a queer party, of course. <laughs> and they they also sounded on paper like a really good match. They are also queer and non-monogamous. And one of them is trans. And I was really anxious about matching with people where there wasn't a trans person in the equation because I wasn't sure if they would be able to see or respect my gender, especially through the process of pregnancy let alone afterwards, or if they would have concerns or preconceived notions about what it meant for me to be pregnant as a trans person. So there were a lot of things I felt really confident about going into it. And um, we met up in Brooklyn one night for dinner. I just knew right away that they were the right match, that they were going to approach parenting in a way that I would have liked to approach parenting. And maybe we weren't exactly the same, but that they had a lot of the same values that I had and that they were also committed to to being in touch together. And also I really, I felt a lot better about the way that they approached the conversation with me, which was to ask a lot of questions about what I thought I might want or what I want my, what I might want my role to look like with a lot of openness rather than being prescriptive about what would be available to me. Like they really seemed invested in collaborating and approaching it as ethically as possible to respect me as a part of the process, which mm-hmm. felt really unique and really important. Just can I ask, as you were yeah. finding these people that like you're going to these like first dates, mm-hmm. so the agencies aren't being helpful. So are you kind of using your own network, your own sort of what's available to find these people and like doing that work yourself? I was using mostly the internet. Um, wow. uh, prospective adoptive parents build websites all about themselves. It's mm-hmm. it's like, and there are a few websites that are almost like match.com, but mm. for adoption mm. and you can just scroll through hundreds of profiles of prospective parents and then connect with them to, to meet. Yeah. The, the agencies just, they can help you to match. They also have their own like books of families that you can kind of look through until you find someone you think you want to meet, but they're very, very heteronormative. All of the language is you as a birth mother and you as an expectant woman and all these things that like really turned me off. And then also there are a lot of different practices that agencies use around how they place babies depending on where they come from and how much they charge for a baby of what background to an adoptive wow. parent. Yeah, if you want a, a white infant, you're going to pay more than someone who's willing to adopt a child from a different background or a child that's a little bit older or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. It's sick. Yeah, uh, it sounds it's awful. really sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting to the the focus specifically on adopting infants as opposed to children, because I think there's this appeal of an idea that an infant is a clean slate and that you won't have to engage with the background in the mm. same way, which is never true. Like it all, unless you are going to not tell your child that they're adopted, which I don't think is a very fair mm. thing to do. Eventually they're going to want to know mm. about their life and the better prepared you are to have that conversation with them, the better prepared they are to receive the information mm. or better yet, if you normalize their story, their entire life, then they don't have to f- hit a wall someday. Mm-hmm, um, sure. You know, a, a lot of agencies do encourage some degree of openness and what typical openness looks like in an agency adoption might be a letter and photos 
for the first year, once a month, and then once a year after that until Mm -hmm. your kid turns 18 and the agency intercepts all of your mail correspondence so you don't have access to each other's addresses. Mm -hmm. Um, You might not know each other's last names. You might have a facilitated visit once a year. Mm -hmm. It's a very low level of contact Mm -hmm. and it's very, it's facilitated. It's not organic. And that's for a lot of people, that's best case scenario. And there's this idea that there's that there's some protection offered by creating a certain degree of anonymity between the birth parent and the adoptive parents, even though birth parents fill out pages and pages and pages of paperwork about your background and your medical history and what subjects you did well in in school and what mm. your hobbies are and what your relationship with your own family is like that the adoptive family gets access to and you get to read a, a profile that they've created of themselves. Mm. Um, so there's already this huge imbalance in access to information. But I think that there's this lingering fear that agencies help to validate in a way that birth parents are to be kept at arm's mm. length for any number of reasons. This sort of boogeyman that the birth parent is going to show up and try to reclaim their space Mm. as the one true parent someday and disrupt your perfectly constructed family, Mm. which um, I don't think is usually what's going to happen. Right, right, right. It's just this myth that we create for ourselves. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not, it's not viable. Rules rooted in fear. Right. 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 Trying to prevent something that you're just not like a reality. You're trying to prevent a reality from happening in front of you. Yeah. 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 And there are, you know, there are a lot of things that there are a lot of side effects of abiding by that philosophy that have, I think, negative impacts and negative outcomes for everybody involved in an adoption dynamic. You know, I was receiving all of that and processing all of that and just really put off by it Mm. and had, you know, my own notions about family building and what it could look like or what it should look like or what I hoped for. And it seemed like my son's parents and I were really on the same page. Mm -hmm. Um, So we moved forward with the match. Can I ask a question? One of the things that you mentioned that was important to you was that they be able to respect your gender identity, even though there would be shifts in your body. And you'd mentioned that right before you got pregnant, you started to feel like you were being perceived and, and and, and people were responding to you based on your gender identity. And you knew that would change. Did the prospect of you having to now re-clarify for folks and did that feel frustrating? Did it feel you're an educator? Did it feel like another opportunity to educate? Did it feel exhausting? Like, tell me a little bit about that. All of those things. Um, all, of those the, things. all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Early in my pregnancy. So I stopped taking testosterone as soon as I found out that I was pregnant and I've never been back on. And early in my pregnancy, I was more open about it and I had more energy to kind of navigate that conversation with people about what, what it felt like to be going through this process that is highly gendered for a lot of people. Mm. And that people assumed would make me feel really dysphoric. And then there came a point where I just was kind of surviving the whole process and had to prioritize where my energy was going. Being, um, I was in school full time and I was working and I was pregnant and I was trans and I couldn't do all of those things all the time. And so there came a point where I just, just was kind of getting through the days and not really engaging folks with conversations or asserting my identity to people that I didn't know. And you were looking for parents for your, yeah. for your kids. Like, right. All those things and looking to make a future. Right. Yeah. Right. Trying to, trying to maintain my relationship, which, um, you know, was 
was really hard. It was a really, a really challenging time. My partner and I would be out in public. People would congratulate us, would assume that he was the father of the child, assume that we were raising the child, assume that we were excited about being pregnant together and just put us through this ringer of constantly having to face this question of, are we going to go there and tell this person what's what, or are we just going to smile and say thank you and feel terrible about it for the rest of the day? And neither of those options are um, are really appealing, but you don't always want to tell the waiter at Chili's everything about everything about gender and parenting right, and right. reproduction. Sure. Um, you shared that because I think it gives people permission to sometimes just be and focus on surviving and not always focus on, I think that when you, one finds themselves in the status of not being, you know, not being the majority, you always feel like you're educating or always feel like explaining and always, and that sometimes giving people permission, you don't have to educate today or explain <laughs> or right. And you will have to battle either saying something or feeling bad that you didn't. Mm-hmm. And that is the struggle, but sometimes just surviving is actually the thing that you need to prioritize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was complicated because there's no, neither choice feels great and neither choice really feels like a break, but you can't be on all of the time. And it's not your fault. It's not my fault that other people assume that pregnancy and womanhood are inherently connected or that every pregnant person who's accompanied by someone who looks like a man is like, that's the person they're reproducing with. It's not my fault that those are the assumptions that people make. It impacts me and it impacted us a lot to face that constantly. And it put a huge strain on our relationship you know, I know that my partner has always wanted to be a father and having to be so close and yet also so far away from the process that I was going through and to have people force them to engage with it so regularly, I think created a, <laughs> a lot of really intense feelings to mm. process, probably a lot of resentment and uh, things were really tough for a while. But, you know, we we kept on keeping on and I stuck it out with the relationship with my kids' parents who were really supportive and really patient and really great through everything. And then towards the end, you know, I started to feel like I had things under control. My partner and I decided to stop living together for a short period of time because it was just a lot. So we moved a mile away from each other Mm -hmm. so that we could still see each other all the time, but have a little bit of space around this like super tender thing. I got out of school in May. My baby was due in July. So I had a little bit of downtime to just prepare. And at that point I felt like, okay, like I figured this out. I've made my choice. These people are great. This is best case scenario. I'm going to get to be a part of my kid's life. They understand my gender. I'm going to be like a fun uncle. This is going to be great. This Mm -hmm. is perfect. This is fine. (laughs) This is fine. Um, and then, um, then the baby came and Gotta say, the day that I went into labor, my partner, God bless him, showed up and took me to the hospital and got me through what was like really intense, really intense. Birth is really intense. My water broke at my apartment and four hours later, my baby was in my arms. Yeah, it happened really fast. We spent probably a third of that time on the Q train and another third of that time in triage. And it was just the two of us for most of it. And I just remember my partner really putting on and excited and you can do it face for me all day and just repeating like, this is temporary. You're going to have a baby. You're going to get through this. This thing you're feeling is temporary. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. As I was, you know, screaming that I was dying, having back labor and I, there was no time for 
meds. So I got the natural birth that I thought I wanted. Um, <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden this baby was Earthside, and we were in the hospital with my son and uh, the reality of how hard it was going to be started to set in. We had these brief two days where my son was my son. And I feel so complicated about that time because it was so, so precious to me as this only period of time in his whole life where I would be responsible for him and where I would be able to take care of him exactly as I saw fit. And I have really tried to divest from feeling possessive about other people and from approaching love in a possessive way. I think you know, like we make a point to practice compersion and to be happy to see the people that we love receiving love. And when it comes to kids, I think the more people that are around to take care of them, the better. And also there was this huge vulnerability in signing these papers that said, what happens after this is not up to me. So we had these, these really intense couple of days together. And then my son went home from the hospital with his parents and I went home by myself. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, we had a super close relationship and lots of contact and I was breastfeeding. So I saw them really frequently in the beginning. It was really hard. It was just, I mean, there's, you know, so many chemical things going on in your body that your body wants you to be close to your baby to help alleviate some of that pain of um, your uterus contracting after birth or all of the other things that hurt. And I didn't really have any of that. And I was just kind of sitting with this physical recovery and this reconciliation of my child is out there and is well, but is not with me is lost, is not lost, but is lost to me. And feeling like I knew that I made the right choice, especially as I was alone in my like messy little apartment and definitely did not have the resources or the capacity to parent a child, let alone the way that I would like to. I felt that it was right. And I also felt that it was so unfair like if circumstances were different, if people really had access to the kind of resources that it takes to parent a child, would I have made a different decision? Probably, but that's not the world that we live in. And so I was just kind of stuck and I was really sad for a long time. Um, the adoption agencies, they send you these packets about what to expect. And one of the things that they had said was that you should expect to cry every day for the first year. And before my son was born, I was like, <laughs> that's nonsense. I'm so happy with this decision. This is best case scenario. We're so close. I'm going to be fine. This is great. I feel so good about this. And then, oh my God, not only did I cry every day for a year, I, I cried many times every day. I started wearing sunglasses in public because I would see other people with children and just hate them mm. and <laughs> resent them and envy them. It was tough. There are not really outlets for that specific process. It's hard to find other people who can relate to going through something like that. Yeah. How did you find places to, or did you? Yeah, right. I, I didn't really, I had a really great therapist, thank God. And I did, uh, I did start talking to one person who had, um, who had also gone to NYU, which was where I was going when I got pregnant and who had also pursued an open adoption and had, more than usual contact with her kid. And so we started emailing a little bit and we met up for lunch, I think a couple of times. And 
it was really, really great to meet and talk to someone who just instantly understood the things that I felt, um, which were complicated. You know, I started to have these feelings towards my son's parents that on the one hand were so grateful to them for continuing to include me and making this effort and who were inevitably witnessing my pain. Like I would go to visit them and when it would be time to leave and to hand my baby back to them and go home, I would just lose it. And there was no, there was no stopping it. Like there was no hiding it. I could not control it. And so they had to see me cry a lot in the beginning and they didn't shy away from it or ignore it or, you know, they didn't try to pretend that that wasn't happening, which I really appreciate because I'm sure it must've been really difficult, Mm -hmm. especially in those first uh, 30 days in New York, you have, you have 30 days to change your mind essentially before your, um, the termination of your parental rights becomes irrevocable. Those first 30 days were high stress for all of us. I know that even though they didn't, they never asked me for reassurance. They never asked me to make it okay or to make it easier for them, even though they saw me struggling. And I knew that it was obviously stressful for them. And I'm sure that they wondered if this child that they had also fallen in love with and were caring for was going to be a loss for them too. And we all just had to kind of like tango with these like Mm. really intense emotions while also trying really hard to maintain a positive relationship with each other to just like get through that time. And so I was, I was so appreciative of them for coming to see me and making space for me and allowing me to feel all of those really uncomfortable things. And also there was this little part of me that just hated them Mm. so much at that time because they had my kid and I didn't. And I was I missed him and I would go to their house and, and see them and see them being a family and see them parenting or we'd be out and about and they'd be holding the baby and I would just see them having this family that I couldn't have, but was so close to that. It was just like really, really intense. But we, you know, we got, we got through that time somehow. <laughs> God bless them. And I think that Going through all that is part of what made me understand a little bit more why people pursue close adoptions or less contact adoptions, right? Because that process is just agonizing for mm-hmm. everybody involved. Like I cannot describe the like intensity of pain mm-hmm. of being a close witness to your kid and someone else's family that you are outside of. And I feel so fortunate that we have this very non-traditional dynamic and have made such an intentional effort to be inclusive of each other and respectful of each other and to not be also on top of all that competitive about titles or roles or, you know, who answers the question when we're all out of public and somebody asks whose kid it is. Mm -hmm. I can really understand people wanting to create some like space around having to go through that. At the same time, I think that it has made us really, really close I have, you know, a level of openness with them that I don't have with some of my biological family. Mm. I feel like I can really, really trust them whenever we have anything to talk about or figure out that might be difficult in any way. I have this this much deeper trust now that we're going to continue to do this thing through the years, however hard it gets. Because after those first 30 days, you know, there came that point where okay, like now um, birth certificate has been reissued. I'm not on it. I, in the eyes of the state, I don't exist to this child. There's really limited precedent for enforcing contact agreements in adoption. 
And then I started to live with this fear of, you know, maybe one day they're going to move to Canada or something. And they're mm. just gonna be like, sorry, bye. Or just not want to do this anymore because mm. it's hard. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, is, is nice about having brought the experience of being non-monogamous into this family situation is being pretty practiced at having conversations that are hard and are laborious mm. and seeing that there are benefits to that on the other mm. side and that being willing to engage with someone else's feelings and, and explore the fears and the what ifs and to actively be thinking about them and the choices that you make and in the way that you engage with another person and to not run away from those things. Like there are real payoffs to that. Like now we have this, this dynamic where I see them every month and we're really close and my kid knows who I am. And that's all, I want to say that's all worth it. Yeah, I never want to decontextualize this whole process from the state that we live in where the the scope of choice is limited. And that is a real thing that I'm I'm never gonna like extract from the situation. But it is what it is. It's not their fault that that I was poor, that this is this is the world we live in. And so given all of that, it it feel it really does feel like best case scenario. It really does feel worth doing all of that. Tune in next week for the part two of Ryan's journey and find out about the final twist in this riveting and inspiring story. If you want to connect with community and tune out to some of that holiday noise that may be around you, then find us on Instagram and Facebook at We Are Curious Foxes. While you're there, you can click on that blue follow button, stay connected and join the fun. Since you're already on your phone, might as well go onto this podcast app and like or follow or share the podcast. It's so easy and it really makes a difference for us. It allows more people to have access to the stories that we're sharing and to consider the different points of view that challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. You can always find us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes and become a supporter of the Curious Fox community to get access to exclusive events, podcast extras, and a lot more. This episode is produced and edited by the one and only Nina Pollock, who cares as much about telling the story as we do, and added her magic touch to make it just right. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saar. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind, and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.